It is October 30th, Lesson 3, Epistle of the Hebrews. Let's begin in prayer. Our Father, our King, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these uh, brave and faithful people that we are studying and that we are uh, focusing our attention on in the book of Acts in preparation for an understanding of the context uh, of the book of of, uh, Epistle to the Hebrews. Father, we thank you that you have uh, given us such a clear vision of who they were, their piety, their faithfulness, the persecution that they went through, Father, and yet they remained faithful to you. We ask that you might teach us how it is that we might emulate them. Father, we also ask that you might teach us Most of all, how we might emulate our Master Yeshua. And we thank you for your blessings upon us. And as we open your word, we ask that you might bless us in it, we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Let's uh, bless the Lord uh, before we uh, open his word. Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Baruch Adonai Hamvorach Le'olam Ba'ed Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Ha'olam Asher Bachabanu Mikohamim Venatan Lanu Et Torato Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Bless Adonai who is blessed Blessed is Adonai who is blessed forever. Blessed art thou, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from all the peoples and gave to us his Torah. Blessed art thou, Adonai, giver of the Torah. Amen. Well, we're continuing our discussion uh, in uh, really kind of getting ready for Hebrews by looking at the context, the historical context in Acts. Uh, but before we got to get into Acts uh, tonight, I just wanted to uh, touch on a couple passages just to uh, reinforce what we've already been learning with regard to the historical context uh, of Hebrews uh, found in the book of Acts and also in the Gospels. Now, it was after that, after three days, they found him, speaking of Yeshua, in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. So when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? And he said to them, Why do you seek me? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? What is his father's business? From Luke 2, 46-49. And why would it ever be in the temple? Here's a loaded question. teaching? This is after the festival, after a festival. They had left. The time that was mandated was over. They had left. They were probably traveling. We, we read in Luke 2 that they were traveling uh, most likely as a family or, or a group of people that had come down from uh, uh, Nazareth, Nazareth. And a- as a group, it would be easy to get lost. You know, uh, the kids are all hanging out with cousins or whatever else, right? And so what we know is we know that uh, three days out, they lose track. Where what? He never did leave with him. I thought we all left together and went back looking for him. And where is he? He's in the temple and he's asking questions. This is, this is wonderful. By the way, if you want historical context, this is good stuff here. This is Hebraic. He's asking questions, but look what it says. So that when they saw uh, it, said, and all those who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. So is he asking questions or is he, making an, or is he offering answers? 
Yes. yes is the answer because what we know is we know yeshiva style is what you ask questions and how do you get an answer by asking another question the second question answers the first question right and so on that's the way that you des- that's the way that you discover answers it, it provides for a extremely inquisitive and rich study of scripture and that's exactly what it was his answers formed by questions were astonishing you know who's in this group are the greats likely Hillel maybe Shammai Shammai may have already passed away about this time but Hillel was still alive these are, these are the greats these are uh, contemporaries of the master however they're older probably 30-40 years at least maybe older than that Gamliel Gamliel uh, uh, would have been here probably as in, uh, in midlife yes uh, his his uh, Gamaliel's uh, grandfather Halil uh, was likely here. Uh, this is where we looked at the, the Solomon's uh, portico, uh, the porch in the temple last week on that picture, and we saw that there's there's a lot of room for people hanging out and, and talking, talking good stuff. Let's talk scripture. Let's get together and talk scripture. And that's exactly where he was. And why would he be there? That's the father's business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple. This is speaking of Yeshua again. With sheep and the oxen, poured out the, the changer's money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then, he's, then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. John 2, 14 through 17. Um, why would he care what's going on in the temple? He's going to tear it down and build it up again in three days. That's what they accused him of. Is that what he said? Is that what he meant? Wrong. He didn't mean that at all. So it was a false accusation offered against him. And so, but why does he care about cleaning out what he calls his father's house? Because it is a house. What we know is there's probably two times he does this at the beginning at the end of his ministry. At the end of his ministry it was, it was just probably a very short time before his before his crucifixion and resurrection well it was going to be annulled then who cares understand the, 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 the silliness of such an idea uh, when we were in, we were in Jerusalem uh, this last summer I mean this is a this is one of the places that you can go you can go to the very place where the money changers the sheep and the oxen were actually on the temple they weren't inside the, the environs of the temple itself but just outside certainly uh, way too close for some of the things that were going on the corruption and whatever else and they worshipped him this is after the the ascension on uh, Olivet the Mount of Olives and they worshipped him the disciples and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising uh, praising and blessing God Luke and that's the end of Luke Amen Luke 24 52-53 why does Luke use the word continually what does continually mean? It's a loaded term, right? Continually 
when we take it into the Hebrew, we, we hear the tamid, the continual sacrifice. What that means is the beginning and the end of the, of the day and all the time in between. In other words, this is the focus of their worship. The focus of their worship is the temple system. And that's why the word continually means they didn't just kind of like hang out there. They were participants. That's what it means. It means they were participants. If you look in the back in your appendix, talk about the temple service, the tamid offering, the beginning and end, the first and the last, at at 9 in the morning and at 3 in the afternoon, there were the tamid offerings. Everything that was offered went between those two. And the the temple service was considered to be continual. The fire, uh, the... uh, um, uh, the service was considered to be continued because of the Tamid offerings, the two. Acts 6, uh, 11 through 15. This is just a review of last week in 7, 51 through 54. Uh, would the Hebrews who received this epistle have listened to false accusations against Stephen? In other words, uh, would they have said, just like we spoke of Yeshua, would they have said, yeah, uh, tear down this tear down this temple uh, and do away with the customs of Moses. Would they have accepted that? No. They would have said, what are you talking about? Would they have continued to read the epistle if the argument being made was the same as the one against Stephen? They would have said, this is, this is not a valid... First of all, it comes to us in Greek. We speak Hebrew. It comes to us in Greek. It's abolishing the temple system. Right? Obviously, they did not read it that way or it would have never been accepted. Because if it came in Greek, they would have already been suspicious. So right away, if we understand their context and what they're look and how they would read it, we will understand that they in fact are not talking about abolishing the temple system. Acts seventeen ten. Actually I didn't have you look this up, so you can look it up with me. We talked about it briefly last uh, discussion time. Acts 17, 10 through 12 says, Then the brethren, immediately this is from uh, the, the brethren at Thessalonica, so this is in Asia Minor. Then the brethren, excuse me, this is in uh, um, uh, Greece. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, which is also in Greece. Uh, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These in other words, these Jews were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Or more noble, actually, is a better way of saying it. I like the noble. In that they received the word with all readiness. What word? What was the word that Paul and Silas carried with them? Yeshua is the Messiah. He is the fulfillment, the culmination of all that we have read. He is the prophet. He is the He is the uh, he is the one that all of our fathers pointed to. This is the message. Repent. And, and uh, they're more fair-minded. And search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So they're, defi- they're des- described as noble or fair-minded. Why? Because they search the scriptures daily. What scriptures were these? Exactly. That what, what we overlook when we're reading this in the church age is that they only had this in Yeah. That's it. They had no letters from Paul. These are which Jews are? Are these believing Jews to start with? No. These are pious Jews. Actually, I would say they are believing Jews in a roundabout sort of way because they certainly accept it immediately upon hearing. They go, "Well, of course, this makes perfect sense." 
Right? We're waiting for the sign, right? They're waiting. And here he is, and, and you described him to him. Let's look in the scripture. Well, you're right. That, that fits perfectly with what we read. There's nothing, there's nothing out of the ordinary here. Would those, would those people have accepted this book? This book was not written, most likely not written by Paul. Would they have accepted this book if it had contradicted the scriptures that they had? Never. Never. What we're, what we're continuing to do, and we will, again, next week as well, what we're continuing to do is to erase the idea that the book of Hebrews was written to keep believers in Jerusalem from, going, from leaving Christianity and going back to Judaism. That's the error. We are, we are, if people that promote that are promoting a, an anachronistic, an out of time, it's, it makes, there was, is there a difference between, we're going to see it today, is there a difference between believing Jews to, in this, so far in this book and non-believing Jews in so far as their religion? Religion in quotes. We understand a relationship is the most important, but their religion. You're talking about different sects of the same religion. Different sects of the same religion. And the different sects actually have very widely differing views on certain very important issues, but they are different sects. That would be like Presbyterians and Baptists today, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So they're both Christians. Exactly. And that they both be Jews. Exactly. If the author of the Hebrews wanted the recipients to leave the Judaic system, just leave that temple stuff. I mean, it's it's icky, you know. Whatever it is, you all get out of that. And I got to Well, did we write Matthew? What did Matthew Henry say? Matthew Henry, our great commentator, uh, our wonderful, actually wonderful commentator, uh, when he used chapter twelve of Hebrews, what is it, what is his point? That's bad stuff, y'all. There's good stuff now. Abandon the bad stuff and take the good stuff. And what we've discovered is, in fact, that's not at all the point. It's the, this is good stuff, here's some better stuff. It's not good and bad, it's good and better. What we see is that he was, if, in fact, he was trying to get them to come out of the system, then why did he come out and say it? He never says it. He never says, abandon the temple, abandon all, that your, uh, all your Jewish stuff, just abandon it and go back to, you know, you know the truth now. And he never does that. And what we see is that this, this, it's a highly technically written book. It's in Greek. There's no question it's Greek is pure and just pristine. Very highly developed Greek. But that shouldn't detract from the point that the book is written also in a very technical and rabbinic. Rabbinic is an anachronistic term, but we don't have any other word to use. Very rabbinic. It's consistent with other writings of, the, of this period that are very Jewish. Extremely Jewish book, even though it's written in Greek. And that, the, and that the style uses Kalbachomer, light to heavy, as the most important element in all of its doing. This is the literary point. It's using Kalbachomer. It's light to heavy. This is good. This is better. One thing is good. This other thing that I'm pointing to is better. What is the good? It's, if it's not temple or Yeshua, what is it? Temple's good. What's Yeshua? The temple points to him. He is the point, Right? As opposed to an abolishment, it is a keeping people's focus correct. An abolishment would have been almost necessary to explain anyway, because if the assumptions about the dating are correct, most of the believing Jews have been kicked out of the temple anyway. And we're going to get into that next week specifically, but you're right. Next week we'll finish our Acts 
overview and and then get into the book of Hebrews week after next. But that's exactly so correct. They're already going through persecution. But they, they already kicked out of the temple. It would be akin to writing to believers today telling them not to be part of the temple. There is none. So it's kind of a, why write a whole letter about that? Remember, the dating was important to a degree. If you dated it after the destruction of the temple, then it, then then it it's kind of like an encouragement that it's okay the temple's gone. If you dated before the temple, it's an encouragement. Maybe you've been kicked out and you still have something. Yes. Okay. And our recipients, the Hebrews, as we read in chapter six of of uh, Acts, they're actually Hebrew-speaking believers living in the city of Jerusalem, or at least in Judea. They are uh, they're observant. They are a temple sect. They are in the temple continually and even though it is anachronistic to say it's not, it wasn't a term that was used then we would call them part of Judaism today if we were to be fair in our reading of, of this text our modern aversion to the things of God and I say the things of God the temple and sacrificial system would have seemed foreign to them if we were to describe in any way a, dis, a, a distaste for the temple or for the sacrificial system they would, be, they would think that we were acting as pagan and let's continue to prove that okay let's look at the different sects uh, this is a table that you had in your in your homework belief that Yeshua is the Messiah the way this is a group of believers within this within Judaism in that, at, at that time this is what they called themselves this is what they were called by others the believers did they believe that Yeshua is the Messiah well yes that's what defined them right what about the Pharisees? Were there any Pharisees to believe? We'll see next week there were. Absolutely. Uh, we know some already. What's some names? Nicodemus. Nicodemus. Nicodemus not only is a Pharisee, he's a very famous Pharisee. Extremely famous Pharisee. In fact, when you read the Talmud, this is like one of the richest guys that lives in the land of Israel. And he's a believer. And he's, he, out, he ends up in the Talmud a lot. Nicodemus. Nicodemus. And we also know Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. He also is a well-known Pharisee. And he's a believer. How about the Sadducees? Did they believe that uh, Yeshua is the Messiah? Well, it, I can promise you, the moment that they began to believe that he was Messiah, they were no longer Sadducees. So we'd say no. And notice that whenever it refers to those who come to believe in them, they're called, they're called priests. Those are the priests. They're That's right. They're the Sadducees. Very good. Excellent. Good point. How about resurrection from the dead? Well, obviously the way believes in it because they see their master, Yeshua, has risen from the dead. It's a main tenet of their faith, right? It's the main tenet of our faith. Not only that he is... Messiah, but that he died and was resurrected. This is the main tenet of what we believe. So yes, resurrected. How about the Pharisees? Same thing. This is a big deal for them. This is what defines them against other sects of Judaism. Uh, worshipped in the temple. The way, yes, absolutely. Um, participating in the prayers. The three times daily. Prayers in the temple... As a group, uh, it appears almost in mass. Everybody shows up. Um, the Pharisees, yes. Sadducees, because they were, by and large, the priests were, in fact, the Kohen, Im, were probably Sadducee mostly. Then they, yes, they, they participated as well. How about leaders in the Sanhedrin? It depends on when. 
right? By this time, maybe there aren't any. Who knows? By the time the book of Hebrews is written. But we know that they had leaders in the Sanhedrin early. We just talked about two of them, right? Maximon, Nicodemus, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. They're, they're believers and they're in the Sanhedrin. How about Paul? I wonder what happened to Paul. Do you think Paul was in the Sanhedrin? Possibly, but asking someone, unlikely he was at least a leader. He might have been involved in the Sanhedrin. He does say he cast a vote. Yeah. One thing's for sure: if Paul was not in the Sanhedrin as a as a disciple of Gamaliel, he would have been right there. Right there. Yeah. And Gamaliel, another person that could possibly get in the way. Possibly. Gamaliel, we're going to look at it today. Gamaliel sympathetic as well. Uh, there's others as well. Uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai, we would say, is, is, is certainly sound sympathetic when we read of him later. Yochanan ben Zakkai, sometime I'll tell you the story, if those of you don't know it. He's the one who left Jerusalem uh, in a coffin, but he wasn't dead. When, the, when, uh, when Jerusalem was surrounded by uh, the Roman army. Um, how about enjoyed the approval of all the people? Before the way showed up, the Pharisees would have been the ones that would claim this title. Because the Pharisees were not nobility. By and large, they were generally common people who by their extreme piety and their revering of Scripture actually gained a lot of... Uh, a lot of uh, popularity with the common people. Um, Sadducees, uh, no, they didn't. <laughs> That's kind of like you got to put up with the Sadducees because they're the priests. How about uh, made up of Jews only? This point, absolutely. Because we're starting, we're going to as we get deeper into this, we're going to see that Acts ten becomes the dividing line of this question. That's the big. What did Yeshua say to them in Matthew chapter 10 when he sent them out? He sent his disciples out. What did he say? Where did he say they should go? Only to the lost sheep of Israel. And in fact, in the chapter before, we read that, you know, even when a, a, uh, a, uh, a Gentile woman comes up to him, he appears to be somewhat reticent to help her. Right? So we see this is a completely Jewish sect. We know that there are proselytes included because they're called proselytes. But other than that, we say they are Jewish. Paul makes it clear later on that uh, the gospel is offered to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. Good. Where, did anybody get have any surprises up here if you filled out this table? That kind of work what you thought? I, I, we had put uh, that the way had no leaders in the same. It would depend on when you did it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. You're thinking about it. Yeah. So. And I and to be fair, I said some of this you may not be able to answer yet because we've only gone up through chapter uh, I think it was through chapter uh, when, nine. Yeah, nine eight. at the time. Yeah, eight at the time. Yeah. Okay, move on. All right, let's let's go to Acts again. Nine four. Acts 9.4 This was the biggest surprise for me. What's that? The, every, every question you had about that. 
<laughs> why is that important? Tell me why it's important. Well, the church teaches us that yep, that, that instead of uh, in being born and given two names at his birth, which we learned after we, we studied Torah, we have always been taught that he was born Shaul a Jew, and when he had that incident on the road to Damascus, God renamed him Paul at that moment, and he was Paul from that day forward. Paul the Christian. Why, 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 is that, why is that teaching important? We have some other basis for that. I mean, it's not out of the blue. They didn't just come up with that. What's the basis for that? Something like the parallel of that with Abraham. That's it. Abraham. There's always a renaming when there's a change of Ab- something. Exactly. Abraham goes from being a Gentile to being father of Israel, right? Jacob. Jacob. From being simply the, you know, Jacob the, the supplanter, which is a bad, actually a really bad word for it, but the supplanter, which is a false accusation, the supplanter to being Israel, you know. Uh, Simon to Peter. Exactly. Simon to Peter. Well, there's another good one. Yeah, it's like... <laughs> wait, wait. Yeah, they actually have a, they actually have a little, little, uh, little uh, monastery in, in, uh, in, in, on, on, Gal- on the Sea of Galilee for that renaming, yeah. <laughs> so this, this was a shocker to me, and I truly saw at least three places that you brought us to that... I never, ever noticed yeah, yeah. Let's, let's look at them. Nine, chapter 9, verse 4. This is speaking of, of Paul. And it says Saul on top of chapter 9, verse 1. It says, and Saul, okay? So he's on the road to Damascus. Verse 4, he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We read later on, Paul gives his testimony. He tells the story again. What language was Yeshua speaking when he says this? Hebrew. So you think he'd use Paul or Paulos or whatever it is in Greek? No, he's going to say his Hebrew name, right? Well, that makes sense. So he calls him Saul, Shaul. Why are you persecuting me? He calls him Shaul. Um, The next one is chapter 9, verse 10. This is afterwards, uh, Paul... By the way, was, did, you hear, did you read anywhere in there where Paul raised his hand? Raised his hand? You know, raised his hand? Anybody want to accept Jesus? No. <laughs> nothing wrong with raising hands. Don't misunderstand. There's nothing at all wrong with raising hands. But we need to understand that a, a belief comes from more than simply a response to an altar call or a response to a call. Right? That may be the way that we know for ourselves that we believe. No question. In fact, most of us have probably had similar experiences. But we won't read that of Shaul's experience. But actually, in reality, Saul's response, Lord, what will you have me to do? Um, and the response of obedience is precisely what you see in First John. Exactly. And in, in Yeshua's speaking to the disciples in the book of John, that is how you know that things like the altar call response exactly exactly so those of us who've made those responses raised our hand walked down an aisle responded when someone shared uh, Messiah with us we can we can identify with him okay but let's not confuse what it was that made the difference where the dividing line between being from the kingdom of darkness and being in the kingdom of light fell. By the way, most people call this, my Bible says, Damascus Road, Saul is converted. I would not completely disagree with that from a theological point of view. I despise that from a historical point of view. What, convert, what did he convert to? 
I would rather be Paul repented or Paul became a believer. Now, theologically, we understand that's, that's conversion. But he didn't convert to a new religion. I, I would even question calling him a believer. I have trouble with that. Possibly. If, if a pious Jew is looking for Messiah and has not been presented with Yeshua, to me, that man is a believer. But once he's been presented with Messiah, Yeshua is the Messiah, he has a choice then. Is that the Messiah? I say no. Fine, then you're a non-believer. I don't know, Paul, Paul, the biggest problem with Paul here is that he's, he's heard, and he's pretty much, he's de- definitely an en- enemy here, yeah. yeah. Something changes in Paul, no question, something's changed here. He responds, and the way we know something changes, you know, we know that something's changed, he says, where, where he responds and he says, Lord, what would you have me to do? When I was a kid, uh, in front of... Uh, the congregation where we attended. That was that was there was no uh, cross or star David at the front. There was just the words, giant, you know, two foot tall. Lord, what would you have me to do? So it's something that's uh, uh, and actually it was it's it's one of the reasons why my father went to Africa. He sat, sat there every week and saw that and that constant Lord, what would you have me to do? And the response that Paul had was that he would go. He would go as an emissary, as an ambassador for Messiah. And that's exactly what he says, right off the bat. We know there was a conversion, if you will, or a change, because he needed to be baptized. Absolutely. There's a huge change. That's exactly right. What is, the, what is it that happens after he goes and he's, and he's actually... Uh, 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 God speaks to, to Ananias, right? Kanania speaks to him, tells him to go and, and pray for Paul. It says, verse 10, uh, nine, chapter 9, verse 10. Now there was a certain disciple in Damascus named Ananias, Hananiah. To him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas, the one called Saul. Oh, wait, he didn't change his name again. <laughs> Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision... He has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, and that he might receive his sight. And Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all those who call on your name. He has authority from the chief priests. So first of all, the fact that it's plural ought to, be, ought to embarrass everybody. Right? How many priests, how many chief priests are there supposed to be in a lifetime? In a lifetime. Uno. Yeah. One. Uh, speaking of in this, in, this, in this domain, Levitical, right? Sons of Aaron. Uh, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Another thing about uh, this chief priest. When, when, when Paul gets letters, top, top of chapter uh, 9, verse 2, he gets letters from the chief priest to go to Damascus to persecute the people of the way. Who does he get a letter from? Sadducees. Who's, his, who's he a disciple of? Gamaliel. A Pharisee. He's, he's a traitor. 
He's switching sides. Just so that you know, when it comes to Pharisees and Sadducees, they're both serving on the, uh, on the Sanhedrin. They have uneasy alliances at times. There were times they didn't even allow each other to marry each other's uh, sons and daughters. That's how bad this rift between Sadducees and Pharisees was. The fact that he goes over shows how passionate he is about persecuting the way. He is definitely a bad guy. Let's go to chapter 22 of Acts, verse 12. Something about this Hanania. Ananias. This is Paul telling about this Damascus Road experience. He says, Then a certain Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there. So this man was a believer. We know from chapter 9 he's a believer. He goes to pray for Paul. And yet how does Paul describe him? A traitor to Judaism. Is that what he says? A, 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 a person in a new religion. Is that what he says? No. He is, has good, a good, just like all the believers at that time, up until that point, had a good rapport. And he's known as devout according to the law. He's an observant Jew. Acts 9. I think that's supposed to be a question mark. Acts 9, 19 through 22. So when he had received food and was strengthened, then Saul spent some days with the disciples in Damascus. Again, he's Saul. He's not Paul. Where is he? He's in Damascus. What does he go to do? Verse, uh, verse 20. Immediately he preached the Messiah in the synagogues, and he is the Son, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Isn't it's not the one who destroyed those who called him this name in Jerusalem? And has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul <laughs> increased all the more in strength. And confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this, this, this Yeshua is the Messiah. They decided they want to kill him. Enough of this nonsense. Maybe Ananias was a little bit low, uh, more undercover than, than Paul was, maybe. I don't know. I don't think Paul ever could be undercover. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 9, verse 26 through 31. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> and when Saul had come to Jerusalem. Oh, there he is again. He's Saul still. Okay. Why, why did he go to Jerusalem? And actually, later on in the book, we find out even more distinctly why. But why did he go to Jerusalem? Well, that's where he's from, probably. He's going to meet with the other disciples. Yeah. But actually, later on in the book, he tells us why he went. He says he went there to pray. Where does he go? He goes there to pray in the temples, what it says. Did God rename Shaul to Paul because of conversion to the new religion, the new Christian religion? No, that's just not true. In fact, we can find it all the way through the Acts. He's called Paul and Saul. Does anybody know why? Why is he called Paul sometimes and Saul sometimes? I think it has to do with who he's talking to um, between Greek-speaking peoples and, and Jewish peoples. That's, that, is, that is the reason, but there is a supposition as to what the, why, why not just transliterate. Didn't his Greek name, didn't his, didn't his Shaul. name in Greek... Yeah, it, it, it's it's supposed that Saul, in in translating into Greek, 
was basically conceited, and it was also a word that one used for a woman of the night. So it was a it was a very it was a it was it was a crude thing to call someone. And so that's just the supposition is the reason why he's called Paul when he's with Greek people is because or Greek speaking people is because Shaul transliterated into Greek sounded crude. You don't want people giggling at you when you're trying to teach them. No, no. That's, that's the guess. But it is. You'll find that he's called Saul or Paul, depending on who, who the audience is. Shaul. Acts 10, 1 through 6. Let's go. Moving on here. This is a, this is a breaking point uh, that we see. The book of Acts probably could be divided into two parts. Up to chapter 10 and after chapter 10. Cornelius is not Jewish. What is he? There you go. A devout man, verse 2, and one who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always. So here's here's how Luke defines devout. And later on we're going to find that the angel defines devout the same way. Question. It says he's a... This is that the same word as early? It says always, but yeah, could be. There's no question here when we look into it, there's a, there's a reason why that might be used. It's related. Just hold on for that thought for a minute because it, it comes back to that. He feared God, he gave alms, and he prayed. Okay? Those alms, at least in the New York standard, appears to be money given to the Jewish no question. Yeah. And the reason why the reason why is because first of all, the the the, the phrase "fear God" is a loaded term as well. He's a God fearer. He's a Gentile. He's a God fearer. In other words, he's accepted by Jews as a halfway. He's halfway here. He hasn't converted yet. But he's not a, he's not Jewish. He's Understand the difference of conversion. Conversion in the first century would have meant that he had to be circumcised and pay the temple tax and be and be. Uh, and yeah, pay uh, once a sacrifice and immersed. Then he would be considered Jewish, even though he didn't have Jewish blood. Okay, uh, as as uh, as Halil said, when he came up out of the water of the mikvah, he would be an Israelite indeed. But he didn't do that. He was in between, right? He was likely accepted by the Jewish community because he was very generous. Any other uh, Hebraisms there? Just about him. Verse 3, Maya. He's praying at the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, he clearly saw a vision, an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, if you ever got the idea that there's a special time of day to pray, it seems like the ninth hour in the book of Acts. (laughs) (laughs) This is Micha, right? This is the Micha prayer time, three in the afternoon, the time of the last, the second Tamid offering uh, in the temple, and uh, from Daniel's day on, this was the, the, the third uh, time for prayer during the day. Okay? The Shema was is said again at, at, uh, at uh, Ma'arif at bedtime. What hour? Yeah, we saw that. Acts 10, 12 through, uh, 12 through 14. 
What's Peter commanded to do? Kill any. Kill any what? Something. Something comes down in a in a in a. Well, first of all, he's sitting. He's at a tanner's house. You know, he's at a tanner's house. Number one, this is like you know, of all places, it'd be hard to keep clean, but it must have been right. This is like. Your senses, would not your senses have been, your senses about what is clean and unclean from a ritual standpoint, would they not have been heightened staying in a tanner's house? Absolutely. And, what, and, and he goes up and he's hungry. And he, and he basically falls into a trance, right? And he sees this vision. And the vision does what? As a sheet comes down, all manner of four, four-footed creatures, nothing wrong with four-footed creatures, all manner of creeping things, no matter what, no matter, no problem with creeping things. The problem comes in what is said. What does the what does the voice from heaven say? Arise, kill and eat. Arise, kill and eat. And what is his response? By the way, this happens three times. What is his response? I said verse thirteen. It's actually verse uh, fifteen. There, page twenty-one. Your homework. What's his response? <laughs> She multitasks. She can draw and answer. Uh, no, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything uncommon or unclean. Two different things. I've never eaten anything uncommon or unclean. Not so, Lord. Obviously, he, we, we can know then by what he's seeing, there's something in that sheet that he shouldn't eat, right? And he says, not so, Lord. Um... But well, we know there has to be. It says there's all men uh, four footed and all men are. I mean, everything seems to be in there, so. There's got to be cleaning out. Who is the voice? Mm-hmm. You assume it's got to be Peter's response, but technically it's understandable. Who's the. That's right. But what does the voice say? Verse 15. Do not call unholy what God has cleansed. So don't call holy what God's cleansed. Unholy. Uh, don't call unholy what God has cleansed, right? Since God cleansed that food in that dream, then you don't have to. Yes, that's, now that's what people do. The problem is, and there's actually, you know, you could take that for what it is. The problem is that would, that would whether that does or isn't, is or isn't true, the problem is it still misses the point of the story. Because the point of the story isn't about food. Whether it's, whether it's true or not that this is an abolishment of Leviticus 11 is immaterial at this point. The point is, what is the point of the story? The point of the story has nothing to do with food. It's about people, right? Let's go to Ezekiel chapter um, 4. Uh, I, I can't see how any serious student of the Bible could read this Acts 10 passage and not flip back to Ezekiel 4 oh, and realize no. oh. that there has been another thing very similar and that one didn't have to do with food items. But it had to do with the same thing. You bet. Had to do with exactly the same thing. Look at uh, Ezekiel chapter four, verse nine, and this may be why Peter gets it. Peter's a student of the word. This may be why Peter immediately understands what's going on. Three times this happens. He says, "Not so." He says, "No, whatever I say is, is whatever I cleanse or whatever God has cleansed, don't say common." Because uh, Ezekiel four nine says. This is, this is God speaking to Ezekiel. Also, take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentil, millet, and spelt. 
Oh, here's these. But Janet, what is it? Seven? Seven grain? Don't you love that? Seven grain bread? Ezekiel bread? Yeah, but you know, you got to cook it over what? Said, put them into one vessel. So anytime somebody tells you, oh yeah, it's healthy for you, all you have to do is say, have you read that passage? <laughs> How are you cooking it? Put them into one vessel and make bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it. And your food which you eat shall be by weight 20 shekels a day. From time to time you shall eat it. You shall also drink water by a measure, one sixth of a hen. From time to time you shall drink. And you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. But here's the reason why. Listen. Then the Lord said, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, where I will drive them. It's about Gentiles. It's about being among Gentiles. This is the picture. Also, God is teaching him something that the priest should have been teaching him. Exactly. Because if you read further forward in Ezekiel 44, you used this passage one time when you were talking about the Levites. About the Levites, but also between what's holy and unholy and clean and unclean. That was what they had been demanded to exactly. people. What was holy and what wasn't. What was clean and what wasn't. And they had not promised him this. Exactly. Exactly. So, but God, by the way, God does relent and says, "Okay, it can be the, it, it can be other than human uh, waste to cook it over." Yeah. Uh, when we, but the most important thing here is that it's it's a it's being used to describe something, and we see this again and again in Ezekiel's life. He gets these weird things lying on your side, uh, and this. Uh, how about Isaiah? Go naked for three years. I'm sorry, is this the command that we're all free to go naked now? No, that misses the point. What is the point of what he told them to do? That's what we're supposed to be getting from it. Not as if it's some sort of command that we're, okay, we're all freed from that law, you know. The laws of modesty no longer apply because God commanded Isaiah that he was supposed to go naked for three years. Isaiah 20. I told you that. That was a joke, by the way. Look at the answer, though. Ah, Lord, I've never defiled myself. It sounds so much like, like the answer that, that Peter gives in Acts 10. I mean, it's so much, so close. And in fact, it's very similar because the, in, in the case of Ezekiel, he says, I never defiled myself. But if you look through Scripture, it doesn't look like what God planned to do. It actually breaks any commands of Torah. And in this case of Paul, or excuse me, Peter, um, he does add an extra word in there. He talks about unclean and common. Um, and so it's possible that he was also concerned about additional laws, which is precisely what's going on with respect to the Gentiles. It is. It is. To be, to be fair, you could derive that it would be wrong to cook over human waste. Whether, whether you could derive it. That's right. The, the, when, it talks about going, when it talks about going to war where you, where you carry your spade. Yeah, absolutely. So you could derive it, even though maybe not a direct command. Anyway, the command to Ezekiel was a picture of defilement of Jews among Gentiles. Guess what? That's exactly what we're getting when we get into Acts chapter 10. Go to Galatians 1.8. eight. I don't think I gave you this one. No, I didn't. But, e- but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So are we supposed to pay attention to voices from heaven? Yes. With one exception. 
What's the exception? We would never pay attention to a voice from heaven that tells us to violate the written word. In, in, in Jewish literature, it's called a bat kol, a daughter's voice. A, a voice from heaven is called a bat kol, a daughter's voice. A small, still small voice telling me to do something. Must be God speaking. How do I know? How do I know it's God speaking? Because God will never contradict himself. Look at Deuteronomy 13, verse 2 through 5. Exactly. And the sign or the wonder, let's talk about a, a prophet. And the sign or wonder comes to pass of that which was spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods which you have not known. Let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who has brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you away from the Lord the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put evil from your midst. This is actually a principle that we as believers must adhere to. The idea that that the Spirit could ever possibly lead us to do something contrary to his word it should be an abomination to us and yet some theologies that's all they get out of chapter 10 and 11 of Acts they just want to find something when they do that whether that's true or not when they do that they're missing the very point of it and the point is a big point it goes back to what the point with Ezekiel is it has to do with the mixing of Jews and Gentiles chapter 10 of Acts is Gentiles are not to be regarded as unclean. Why? Because the Torah says so? No, it never does. That's the assumption people make. It never has any reference. In fact, if you are careful and follow it, you'll discover that the sojourner is a Gentile. It is the sojourner constantly referred to as being included in, in the community. Why? Because they have joined themselves to the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Absolutely. This says there is one law, one law for both native-born and sojourner, Gentile. In fact, the sojourner is given permission to be involved in the most Jewish, quote-unquote, other objects that are given... Sacrificial system itself. Sacrificial system. That's right. Which is actually against, in some ways, what's going on at the time, culturally, in the first century, where the Jews were not allowing the, the Gentiles to have any real part of their existence. Not to go a lot, lot deeper into this, but just so they get a historical context, in the first century, it's not, it's not completely incorrect that they had distanced themselves from Gentiles for several reasons. First of all, historically, just 150 years, actually from this point, from the book of Acts, about 200 years earlier, the time of the Maccabees, there had been this, this huge move towards becoming, uh, be, becoming more like the other Greek colonies because uh, the land of Israel was under, under the, the, Seleucid, the Greek Seleucid Empire. And uh, because of that, 
there was a movement away from the things of God. They become that's where the term Hellenist came from. They started speaking Greek. They stopped they stopped participating in the temple system. They 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 built a Colosseum in in uh, a gymnasium rather in Jerusalem. Uh, basically, Jews were just like everybody else. They were Greeks. Um, they stopped circumcising their sons. It's a big deal, and that's where the whole story of Hanukkah and, and the Maccabees comes from, is this idea that, no, we, we must remain, the people of God, distinct from others. And there were, there was, it was after the, after the Maccabees and Jewish independence, uh, in, in about 164, of the, uh, before the Common Era, they actually they, they were successful for a generation of really establishing an independent Jewish and very observant nation. It went downhill from them because of some of the commands they didn't obey, like who should be king, uh, from what house they should be king. They were Levites instead of from Judah. But one of the things that you discover also is that some of the some of the things that, and it also goes even further in the Great Assembly in Ezra, in around 400 before the Common Era, where they actually were told to separate themselves from their from their Gentile uh, Gentile wives, and and this separation between Jew and Gentile because the because the Gentiles were always pulling the Jews out of faith in God and and so there's something to it it's not it's not incorrect the problem is what they did was they established a pattern and a lifestyle an oral tradition that actually was contrary to what God said anybody have a anybody have a JPS Tanakh here JPS translation stone stone Tanakh you read the Stone Tanakh or JPS translation, the Jewish Society Publication Society of the uh, Tanakh, you'll discover that as you're reading various places, the word proselyte comes up all the time in English. It says proselyte. Well, the Hebrew behind that is not proselyte at all. It's ger or sojourner, a Gentile. They change the word to the English word proselyte because they are so uncomfortable with the idea that a Gentile can be considered part of the house of Israel and not have gone through a ritual conversion to Judaism. Remember Cornelius? Cornelius, we're told very plainly, had not gone through a ritual conversion. As we're going to go through the rest of the book of Acts, we're going to discover this is, in fact, the probably the biggest fight that you will find in the apostolic scriptures. This is the line in the sand. This is how Judaism defines themselves against every other religion. It's only for Jews. This is something completely foreign to their thinking. How can you worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and not be Jewish? And if you aren't, they have this odd place in the middle like Cornelius is he could come into the temple but he couldn't cross that 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 wall that short wall the dividing wall we looked at in the picture last week just a small little wall where there were signs that says pass this Gentile at pain of death he could come into the temple he could come into the holy environs but he couldn't approach the almighty he couldn't bring a sacrifice into the temple he could pass it over the wall because somebody else did it, but he could not go on in. And it is, it is. This is a big deal. That and that whole area, that court of the Gentiles, is monstrous. It's huge. This was a popular, a very popular religion in this part of the world among people who weren't Jewish. 
That's why we see this explosion in the book of Acts of Gentiles who are coming to faith. They're going, finally, we get to be a part. And we don't have to go through conversion. You know, to be Jewish, I mean, some of them did. To be fair, some of them did. Because they so desire to be a part of the family of God. Okay, I'll do whatever the rabbis say, it's fine. I'll do it. Uh, not to deny that that was a valid thing. The point is, is that the way that you become a part of the family of God? No. The rabbi said that's how you become a part of the family of God. What did God say? They joined. How did they join? How did Rahab become a part of the family of God? She believed. She believed. She joined. It's like, here I am. We're going to go with that. We get to the chapter 11 of Hebrews. That's right. Uh, how about, uh, how about um, Ruth? How did Ruth become a part of the family of God? By the way, she's called a proselyte in, in, in JPS as well. But put that aside. How does, how does the scripture tell us? She believed. I, you know, I, I'm saying, so, okay, so I'm not Jewish. Can I believe in it? Can I be a part of the family of God? Understand for us, especially if you come from a Gentile heritage, it's almost impossible to recognize. Like, I don't know what the big deal is, you know. I mean, I've always believed, of course, you know, it's because we outweigh and we, and we outnumber Jewish believers. That's why. But in reality, think about it back then. There's nobody except Jewish believers. And no one can worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob unless they're Jewish. Period. Okay, you can come into the temple, but you can't really, you're not a part of the family of God. We'll call you a God-fear. Maybe God will be gracious to you. You get something. You get some scraps from the table. And when, we, when we join each other to, at, the table, at, at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the world to come, maybe you'll get the scraps like the dogs do. At least you'll be there. No. See, what we see is something dramatically different here. And that's what Paul's mission to go to Gentiles, you had to know that when Paul heard that, that was a weird thing to hear. Right? I'm going to be your emissary to the Gentiles? What's up with that? I guess we're going to make them into proselytes, huh? What did Yeshua say in Matthew chapter 23? You Pharisees, you'll go to the ends of the world to make a proselyte. So yes, this was in fact part of the deal. Maybe that's what he's thinking when he heard, it. "Okay, well, great. I'll be, I'll be like, I'll be like a Pharisee missionary. I'll go and win people over to, to, to you know, convert, and go, go through a ritual conversion. Ritual conversion. Anybody remember what it is again? We talked about it briefly. Circumcision, sacrifice, um, temple tax, mikvah, and a mikvah. The mikvah was last, and and Halil said if. You couldn't do anything. The mikvah was most important. But the most important. The mikvah is the 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 immersion. The most important aspect of the conversion process, and the biggest issue that shows up in the in the first century, gets affected when you finish the conversion process. You were a Jew. You were a Jew. You were a righteous Gentile. You were no longer Gentile. Exactly. You had no Gentile. You, your blood wasn't Jew. In fact, what it said was, you could honest. Now, there's debate now, but back then there wasn't. Shammai didn't like it, but Hillel, he was the, he was the big dog here. Hillel said, you were Israelite indeed, you could pray, God of our fathers, Abraham, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you could pray it. So you have to understand, they considered you to be, you had a new family. When you converted to Judaism, that's anachronistic term, but when you converted to uh, what we would call Judaism today, back in the first century, you, became, you had a new family. You had a new genealogy, even. Okay? Indeed, is just one coming back from the dead. As one born again. Which is exactly why it's such a big deal when Nicodemus knocked him on 
goes to Yeshua in John chapter 3 and says, well, you know, how does one, how does one uh, know that one has uh, uh, um, a, a place in the world to come? And, and Yeshua's answer is, uh, unless you're born again, and, he's, and he, a, a Jewish sage, saying, well, I know... It, we, we read that and we think that he doesn't know what that means. He knows exactly what that means. But he says, that doesn't apply to me. I'm already Jewish. How can I do it? I can't go back in the womb again. I'm already Jewish. That, that's, like, that's like becoming Jewish twice. <laughs> yeah, Jewish squared. Yeah. Whereas, and then Yeshua's response to him is what? He's like, what, you're a teacher of the law? You don't know this? Right? Well, the reason we read that differently is because it's so, it's so baffling. We think this term born again is a new term. If you read Jewish texts, it's not a new term at all. It's exactly what they called the immersion after conversion. When you were dumped in the water and came out of the water in the mikvah, it said you were as if you were born again. It's a Jewish term, to be born again. Well, what we see in Acts 10 is a complete change of that. The Gentile, Cornelius, is still Gentile. Excellent. Go to chapter 10 again. Actually, first of all, bottom line, and this is true, whether they take Acts 10 or... 11 out of context or not bottom line most theologians say yes this is about Gentiles being included okay in the end they finally admit that's the whole point of it they just use it for other reasons as well which wasn't really the point of us getting into it but anyway Acts 10.15 what's Peter's vision about he tells you what it's about this is what he understood what God excuse me what he hears what God has cleansed you must not call common And what did Peter say that the vision was about in chapter 10, verse 45, and then 48, and also then in chapter 11, the council themselves say? What did they say it was? 10.45. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, upon those who heard the word, speaking he's been Cornelius' home, and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had also been poured out on the Gentiles only. Also, excuse me. For they heard them speak with the tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? What's he doing? He's saying, look, the first part of all that stuff that the rabbis say, not necessary. There is something, though, that we've been commanded to do. There's been a change in status. These are as... They have been. They have been born again. Let's make it right. God has granted repentance that leads to life. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, and they, and they asked them to stay many days. What does, what does uh, Peter, when he comes to uh, Cornelius' home, what does he say? Why does he say there's a difficulty, or that the difficulty has been done away with? Is it against the law? Is it against the Torah for him to go into a Gentile's home? Verse 28, 10. Then he said to them, You know that it is unlawful, how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one another of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. It's very unfortunate sometimes when these words are put into English because they do not convey the truth. The word unlawful is not used. That would be some variation of anomia or against the law. 
or an iniquity or a sin. That's not at all what it says. It wasn't against the civil law. It wasn't against the Torah. What was it against? It was against man's custom. And actually, that's, that's the phrase. The phrase says it would be improper. It's a tradition. That's great. The tradition, I think, was partly in places for fear that you might accidentally be offered food that had been offered to an idol or was absolutely. There's there's a basis. There is a basis for it. Understanding the basis for it, though, is different, quite different from then distancing yourself from the very people that God has said you to embrace as brothers. Uh, Acts 10:23 and 11:3. We saw what's the big deal? God never commanded the separation between Jews, believing Gentiles and Jews. The inclusion of Gentiles in Acts 10 and 11 is the significant turning points for the entire rest of the Book of Acts. Everything changes now. Mm-hmm. You also begin to see, starting here, that the Sadducees are no longer the only group that has issues of the way. Lots of Pharisees begin to argue and debate with them. Oh, Excellent. Exactly. Up until this point, it's Sadducees. You've been seeing it. It's the chief priests and the Sadducees that are picking on the disciples. Now, after Acts 10 and 11, now we get Pharisees saying, yeah, that we, we don't like us people either. I mean, it, for goodness sakes, they're bringing Gentiles in the ground here. You know, who knows what's going on? You know, it's like if you're at a, if you could actually, you could actually, there are ways you could eat at a Gentile's home. However, the only way you could drink, you couldn't eat anything, but you could drink. You could drink wine at a Gentile's home, provided the wine was sealed. But if you got up and left the room and came back and the wine was unsealed, you could no longer drink it. They were, they were very, very, very careful. You know, I mean, these are understandable things. If you look at this, if you look at the, the true commands, they're understandable, but they, are, they deny the very essence. And what is the essence what is the essence of God's commands? It's to love Him and love one another. Uh, I gave you a bunch of scriptures here. Just go over them real quickly. We don't have to read them all. Um, Acts 13, Acts, uh, two places in Acts 13, Acts 17, Acts 18. Did anybody find any reference to the first day? Or rather, more importantly, did anybody find any references to Sunday? None? Actually, there is a reference to the first day of the week. Acts chapter 19. No, it's not 19. Maybe it's 18. Preaching in the middle of the night, y'all. Ephesus, right? Yeah. Eutychus. The 17? No. So far back? Anyway, that's it. Eutychus, he preaches all night, says it's the first day of the week. Guess what? There is no such thing as first day of the week. The Greek doesn't say the first day of the week. Try and find the first day of the week in Greek. It doesn't exist anywhere in the apostolic scriptures. You know what it says? The first of the Sabbaths. Plural. Sabbaths can be read as a week. Sevens. It's a seven. So that's why it was used that way. But even then, you can't find reference to them meeting other than daily. Yeah. Sunday is a... Is, it is not... A quote New Testament belief. 
That's right. Nothing wrong with meeting on the seventh day of the, or meeting on the first day of the week. Nothing wrong with it at all. But don't claim it's the day that has replaced the Sabbath because it hasn't. Uh, what else did we see in those passages? Where is Paul constantly going? The synagogue. Now, to be fair, to be fair, the synagogue is not a Jewish thing. We've only used that word for Jewish things. The scriptures actually have James actually talking James chapter 2 actually uses the word synagogue when someone comes into your synagogue a man comes into your synagogue a rich man comes into your synagogue we'll give him a, a special place it, we usually translate it in English though we don't that, we fall uncomfortable with that the translators don't like that so they change it to when someone comes to your assembly whereas every time it talks about an assembly in the book of Acts the translators say a synagogue of the Jews so they're trying to make a differentiation between. Well, they were trying to make a difference between a church and a synagogue, as if there is such a thing as the church, and as if there isn't such a thing as synagogue. To be fair, he goes to the synagogue. Where is where is it that Paul goes to meet? And it's not a mission field because he goes there after they believe as well. He goes to the synagogue. So that, that's just Hebraism, okay? Jewish things. Chapter nineteen twenty four. And 24, 24. What, are they, what are these believers called? This is your homework on, uh, see on the page, finishing up here, page 23. What are the believers called? Acts 9-2. Actually, it says 9-9 there. It's 9-2. And 19-9. What are they called? The way. When we get later on into this, about four weeks from now, this is going to have a lot of significance why they called themselves the way and it may be ways that you know John 14.6 I am the way the truth of life Yeshua said I am the way certainly that has a bearing on this use of this phrase but as well there are other places that it talks about the way that it's very important to understand so the way uh, chapter 24.5 if you had 23.5 there on your homework on page 23 it was 24.5 a sect of the Nazarenes. That's what they're called. They don't call themselves that. A sect of the Nazarenes. Does everybody know the difference between a cult and a sect? A cult is something on its own. Not accepted by others. Right? So to say that... Not, not, to, be, not to be disparaging, but to say Mormons are a cult of Christianity is not an incorrect thing to say. They are not a sect of Christianity because most of the other people that call themselves Christians would not include Mormons. Do you understand that? Uh, So a sect is people who are recognized by others within a group but just simply are different from themselves. So to be called a sect of the Nazarenes means that other Jews considered them to be Jews. Okay? Or the same religion as it were. Uh... The way is also called the sect in 24.14. And in in Acts 11.26 and Acts 26.28, there's two references, the only two references in the Apostolic Scripture, to being called Christians, or uh, little messiahs, followers of Messiah. Yeah, it does, you're right. I'm sorry, you're right. The three, the twice in Acts here, though, called Christians. Uh, What is the reference, what's the focus of being a Christian in the book of Acts? Is it defined as something different from being from the way? No. What, what, is, what does the word Christian mean? Not what it's come to mean. What did it mean then? It says who your 
teacher is. That's right. That you, you're emulating Messiah. your master. Right. That's why, and that's why believers uh, who are sensitive to that today call themselves messianics, as opposed to, but not not distinguishing themselves from Christians, but simply saying it's easier for me to say Messiah because understanding that there are a lot of people who have called themselves Christians over the over the years, Adolf Hitler, <laughs> among others, among many others uh, who certainly weren't. And how do we define ourselves better? It's, it's not to distinguish yourselves as different from. But how do we define ourselves better? And that's why people are maybe sensitive. Use different ver- words, you know. I, I know people who say the way until the way started up as a cult. Now there's no people who claim to be part of the way anymore. <laughs> You're a believer a lot. But no, never, none of these terms are distinct from what would we would call today Judaism. And this is, this is the great uh, historical... Uh, Research and and uh, efforts of of you know giants in the last fifty years is to re- recreate the first century uh, in, in as a historical record, but the Book of Acts does it for us as well, and actually does a better job because it's quite well defined and authoritative. Uh, we continue to see, and we have one more week of going through Acts. These cultural changes that believers are having to undergo. Uh, their religion, again, remember, uh, the ritual itself, the, the actions they were going through, we might define as religion. It's relationship with the Almighty was their focus. But the things that they did were the same. Their culture was having to undergo change. How difficult was it for them who had been raised, not truly understanding the difference, Peter, now understand at the time of Cornelius, Peter's been a believer for a long time. And he still hadn't figured that one out. The dramatic change that goes from saying, you know, God never did tell us to stay away from Gentiles. It never dawned on me that we should be including them. Well, he told us not to go to them. He's immersed with Jews. He's not bumping into them. Exactly, exactly. And when he does bump into them, you know, it's within the, it's within the context of... First century land of Israel. That's right. This is a cultural change. This is a hard thing. Very hard thing. We cannot imagine how hard it is for them in the first century to deal with this cultural change. It's a huge shift. It seems wrong. And as we go deeper into Acts, we're going to discover next week, Acts chapter 15, there are a lot of believers that are saying, this is just wrong. We can't do this because there are, there are clear things in Scripture that we are not supposed to just roll over and say, well, that's fine. Just let them all in, all these idol worshippers. Right? This is hard for them. Well, the Gentiles are walking in with a bunch of baggage. Exactly. Imagine, imagine uh, people showing up at congregation in all manner of... of uh, weird clothing, actions that ne- they don't know how to act. They don't know what to say or not to say. These are the cultural things that they had to deal with with Gentiles. And they were dramatic. But their lifestyle, their, their understanding of what they're supposed to do remains the same. It's just now I've got to include Gentiles. That's hard. The believers, and we're going to continue to see this, they were observant temple sect within Judaism. Why is this so important for us to nail down going into the book of Hebrews? 
he, he starts with that and says, if this is good, then Messiah is even better than that. That's right. And if you walk in thinking that is gone or bad or done away with or whatever, then the book doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It, it doesn't. Let, let, me be, let me be honest, though. The people who take that position... Position? The position that that the Judaic system, as they define it, was bad, and that this new Christian system is good, the people that do that can still know and understand Messiah. The problem is, they're not going to see him the way that this book, the book of, of Hebrews, is trying to show him to us. He's trying to show him to us in the book of Hebrews in a very, very different way than we see him almost anywhere else. And really, if we read Hebrews in that way, and understand him in that way, when we go back to the, the Gospels, we're not going to see a different Yeshua. You guys have seen that before. It's like, okay, there's the Christianity that Paul started, and then there's the Jesus thing, whatever that was. Right? There was a shift there. Acts chapter 2, all of a sudden everything changes, right? And what we do is if we take the book of Hebrews and we get, we get, get this nailed down and God, how God has revealed who Messiah is and how it relates to all that system, the temple system, the sacrifice, how it relates to all that, then we begin to understand that when we go back and read the Gospels, nothing's changed. We can't go to Acts chapter 2 and go, okay, here's the dividing line. This is where this, is, this has happened and this is where it hadn't happened. We'll begin to understand that instead of there being two sides to this, you know, a dividing line in your, your Bibles between uh, John uh, chapter 21 and Acts chapter, chapter 2, that, that there is no dividing line. And wow, even then when you go back to Matthew chapter 1 and Malachi chapter 4, there's no dividing line there either. It's like it's all one. It's one faith from the beginning to the end. That is the point of looking at Hebrews this way, because Hebrews this way will help us to better see all of Scripture as a union, as a united, as one thing, one faith, not separate. And what, what set these people apart from the Sadducees was the belief in the resurrection of the dead. What set them apart from some Pharisees was the belief that Yeshua was the Messiah. And what set them apart from both <laughs> is their inclusion of the Gentiles. This was the end. This is the limit. We can't go beyond this point. You're going to include Gentiles. This is way, way out of line. Okay? I'm, I'm glad that he decided to include Gentiles. Let's close in prayer. Anybody have any final comments before we do? Let's close in prayer. Our Father, thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you promised Abraham thousands of years ago that the Gentiles would be blessed in Abraham's seed. And Father, we know that that seed was Messiah Yeshua and that we have been given standing in the commonwealth of Israel that those who believe in Yeshua can claim a heritage in Abraham. And Father, that we are not separated uh, from the scriptures, from the promises, and from the land of Israel, but Father, that you have given us an inheritance even in them because of faith in Yeshua. Father, we thank you that you have done this, though we have no right to it. 
We know it is by your grace that you have done this. We thank you for this. And we ask that you might continue to teach us from your word. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Let's bless the Lord before we close. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torah Temet Vechaye Olam Nata Betokeinu Baruch Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Blessed art thou Adonai our God, King of the Universe who gave to us the Torah of truth and planted eternal life in our midst Blessed art thou Adonai, Giver of the Torah Amen, Amen.